Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Today on Sprogcast, we've got lots to talk about. Our topic is breech birth and we've had a chat with research midwife Sean Walker, as well as the story of a breech free birth. This is episode 29. I'm Mark Harris and this is Karen Hall. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction. That's not really specialising anymore, is it, Martin? At pinterandmartin.com. Um, and we also want to mention that we're coming to Leeds on the 28th of October at two o'clock in the afternoon with um, a panel of speakers, Sheena Byram, who I expect you might have heard of, uh, Mia Scotland, Yes, clinical psychologist. Um, Claire Harbottle. Yeah, Yorkshire Storks, independent midwife. Rosie Knowles. Rosie Knowles, the GP. And yes, GP, Slings, Attachment Parenting. Brilliant. Renika Schramm. Birthrights, right. And Fran Bailey, who works with refugees and asylum seeker women in Leeds. Brilliant. I, I, and all for what, £15? £15 unless you get in before the early bird tickets at £10 each go. Uh, we're on Eventbrite and um, there's a link on our page. Yeah, it's a must attend, in my opinion. If you're anywhere near Leeds, uh, you, you probably are never. Well, actually, you're never going to get an opportunity to hear all of these folk together in one place. And you get to be in the same room as Mark Harris, which is always lovely. Get out. Get out. So how are you doing, Mark? Me, I'm doing all right. I'm buzzing. I was in uh, London a day or so ago uh, recording an interview with the the good, the bad, and the ugly. You're struggling to say that. Well, I want to say the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then do a bit of a Clint Eastwood music thing. I, I mean, the podcast is aimed at men who are becoming fathers for the first time, pretty much. Right. It's very different to our podcast, you know, where we explore some of the the evidence around birth and early parenting. Uh, I think they thrash out you know, some of the challenges that men experience. And there's an episode on one of them that went to NCT, which is worth a listen. I will definitely check that out. Yes. Anyway, we could maybe post their link to our page at some yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. So how are you? Oh, oh, how's the campaigning going? Well, all the listeners might not know. So, so what's going on? So I'm standing as president of NCT. So running for election, basically. Excellent. Um, There's me and one other candidate and NCT members can vote for me or the other candidate. But good that they vote at all because, you know, democracy is ace. (laughs) (laughs) Voting opens on the 1st of September and goes on for several weeks. So by the time of Sprogast in Leeds, we should know. I I mean, why run in the first place? I've been involved with NCT since my son was born. Well, before he was born, because I did an antenatal course. And I've just, it's been such a huge part of my life for such a long time. And it's given me so many opportunities, um, you know, from training as a breastfeeding counsellor that just exploded as a a whole new career for me. And I get to do a job I love. Working in the branch as a volunteer for all this time has been really key to my social life um, and my sanity at times. I've been the branch chair for about five years um, 
I'm yeah. not not anymore because I'm now doing other things like running peer support training for my branch and Reading branch together. So tra- training breastfeeding peer supporters. Right. And the, the role of president in the NCT, kind of what is the role of the president? So it's a trustee role. So it's voluntary and it's sitting on the board of trustees. So there are um, board meetings. I think there are four or six a year. I can't quite remember which. Um, right. So overseeing the the kind of policy making and planning within the charity as part of the board so it's not like a, a ranking position it's it's not an executive position but it's a, an influential position when it comes to policy yeah definitely having a voice there but i also i, I mean i think the, the president has also got a figurehead role and i'm quite excited about that as well because as you know i like to to talk about nct i do it a lot um yes. and Historically, and as you also know, I've always been sort of slightly under the watchful eye of, of the press office saying, don't forget you can't speak on behalf of NCT, Karen. And if I get to be the president, then I can speak on behalf of NCT and I can say all the things I love about it and I can talk about how brilliant it is for yeah. helping people and supporting parents and reaching out and doing things like, you know, we mentioned Fran Bailey coming to Sprogcast Leeds because she's doing this work with um, refugee and asylum seeker women. And I want to be able to shout about all this stuff. We are a supporter of NCT broadly. We'd have to be. (laughs) Well, I certainly am. You know, 24 years plus of being involved with with midwifery. My interactions with the NCT uh, have been very, very positive. What what I'm trying to say is that there is something about the rigour in terms of the training of NCT that is unique to the NCT in terms of commitment to you know continuing professional development um, and training that there isn't an organization out there like it um, so I'm very supportive of, yeah uh, and you, you see it very much as at the practitioner level but it's it's such a so much bigger than that with the the volunteer base and the membership yeah. and yeah. the fact that there's you know yesterday I was at Reading NCT's Bumps and Babies group and it was just buzzing and there were babies from tiny to toddler in in the room and there was free cake and it was on a boat and there was just so many people chatting and while I was there I could see there was like a couple of people came in together but they'd never been before Um, and then the next time I looked they were chatting with some other people that they'd they'd now met and you know comparing notes about what they're experiencing as as new mums and that whole support umbrella was so important to me yeah i get it there's a there's a sense in which there's the building of what what you might call social capital it is the recreation of a lost sense of community yeah i love it i love it do you know i i was reflecting upon the fact that i often use the stat around the longevity of breastfeeding at a year in the uk being the lowest uh in the world mm-hmm Right. And it's a really startling stat. But you have to hold it in context, don't you? You know, families are, are pretty much fragmented. So they've, they've got smaller in the sense of their connections to other family members. People have, you know, have to have two salaries coming in each month. So the idea of a woman breastfeeding uh, for a year is a real challenge inside the context we live in. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So having anything that builds up a broader social support network has, has got to be very important, I think, going forward. Yes, I think one of the challenges going forward for NCT is is really widening out the the 
the base so that it's not all people from a fairly homogenous group, but you've what? got that much broader. Middle class people, you That's mean? right, middle class white women, um, yeah. of which I admittedly am one. Yeah. But what I see is that things like you've just said, where there are people under pressure to go back to work because they need to have two salaries coming in and the more different people you can meet the more different solutions you can see yeah absolutely cognitive bias works that way doesn't it yeah you know the fact is we have strongly held beliefs about stuff and then at an unconscious level we we filter everything else that doesn't agree with our own opinion and it you can apply that to all the different dilemmas that we we deal with as parents like sleeping feeding yeah. obviously um, introducing solids teething yeah. all, all of it and the yeah. also the more mix of different people you've got hopefully the more tolerant and supportive we can become although i may be being idealistic about that uh, no i think i think you're making uh, i think you're making a a good a good point social media in this regard is a blessing and a curse yes <laughs> he shouted well <laughs> Because of the polarisation that occurs inside people expressing strongly held opinions. I think, you know, I think when we, we're talking about these strongly held views, I can remember very clearly, I think it was, the author was Mary Hannon, and back in the early 90s, her study uh, seemed to prove, inverted commas, that vaginal breech birth was dangerous. And on the basis of the, that study, women were being encouraged to have uh, elective caesarean birth rather than, you know, vaginal birth because of this study. And it shifted the stats around mode of birth for breach uh, almost overnight. I mean, since then, that study was pretty much discredited for its design and the amount of variables and all that kind of stuff. And we are gradually seeing a shift towards um vaginal breach birth are we do you think so i think we are gradually because i get the impression it's very much a minority activity in a proportional sense yes but the work of sean uh, when we're going to hear her soon um and the work of others i think is is shifting the narrative which is ultimately what it's all about right yeah i would say i qualified in 93 just about when mary hannon's work was coming out so uh, I, there wasn't many opportunities. The first vaginal breech birth I was at, I was called to someone's home on my way to the maternity hospital, right? Just to pop in and see if she was okay. I didn't know her or anything. Uh, that was all the information I had. And when I got there, this woman was tightening. Uh, her history was that the baby was head first, uh, that there were you know, no other issues. So when I arrived, she was tightening. And within five minutes, her waters had broke at home. And then it became apparent that the baby was breech. And I, I, I flipped. I mean, I'd done my training. I knew the maneuvers. You know, I was a qualified midwife. And inside, I was afraid, Karen. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, oh, what are the maneuvers? Anyway, long story short, she gave birth standing up, looking out of her window to the baby. And as the baby came out, there was very little for me to do because in an upright position, all of those maneuvers I'd learned uh, became, um, I didn't need them because the baby just came out. 
and um, it was a wonderful experience. I guess what I'm saying is I, I was newly qualified when Mary, Mary Hannon's work was kind of uh, considered gold standard evidence. Yeah. <laughs> and so if, if Mary Hannon's work was um, encouraging more and more people to not birth breech babies vaginally, then is that the the kind of beginning of the loss of skill in yeah i would say i i, I would say surely have her own opinion i'm sure but i i would say so so i'm looking at some statistics that say that at term one to three percent of births are breach right does that sound about right to you where are you getting that from um it's on birth without fear blog okay which may or may not be a good yeah i, I would say that's broadly within so within what, what the stats are. That's not nothing, is it? No, it's it's a sizable portion. And um, the the work that Sean is doing is, is valuable. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that study on our page. Does breach delivery in an upright position instead of on the back improve outcomes and avoid cesarean sections? This is in this is 2017. It's in the International Journal of Gynecologists and Obstetricians. Uh, it's a small retrospective study, relatively 750 women. The conclusion uh, is uh, from the abstract that we've got posted, upright vaginal breech delivery was associated with reductions in duration of the second stage of labour, manoeuvres required, maternal neonatal injuries and caesarean section rate when compared with vaginal delivery in the dorsal position. So, I, I mean, these kind of studies, and there are, there are far more than this one, are encouraging women to at least begin to explore vaginal birth as an option if their baby is in the breech presentation. I just want to look at the numbers here because it says there are 750 women in the trial with yeah. ter term breech delivery. Yeah. Um, 315 of them, so nearly half, actually had the baby by cesarean, planned cesarean. Yeah. You then that leaves you with 269 vaginal deliveries, which is obviously high out of that number of, of breaches. Yeah. 229 of them were upright and 40 of them were on their back. So we're actually comparing the difference between on the back and upright. It's it's not such big numbers once you actually get down to it. I mean, they've done the statistics and what have you. It's all in there to have a look at. But that's if if you were writing about this as a an assignment or something you'd want you'd want to examine that and what would be interesting then is is to look at the actual outcomes for the women who had the babies by cesarean yeah in terms of um uh, maternal and neonatal injuries you mean yeah and, and long-term outcomes as well and, and you know breastfeeding success and all of that stuff very good it's it's, it's almost the nature of of certain types of research to be reductionist isn't it yeah and it has to be to some extent but then as you say you have one point of data telling you one th fact and if you take that out of context you end up making sweeping policy decisions that have long-term unintended consequences like the loss of skill for breech birth yeah absolutely which leads nicely into the interview i think let's listen to it I'm chatting with Sean Walker um, and she's been recommended as somebody who can talk um, to us about breech birth, which is something we've not really covered much on the show before. Hi, Sean. Hi, Karen. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Sure. I'm an academic midwife. I'm nearing the end of my PhD, which is about how professionals um, become competent and develop expertise in physiological breech birth. So I've um, trained as a midwife in the States and here in the UK and practiced here in various different hospitals. I worked for about two years as a breech specialist midwife um, in Norfolk, where I live, and um, counseled during that time, you know, over 200 women who were referred to that care pathway and have attended about 15 vaginal breech births, um, which makes me kind of moderately experienced, experienced enough to understand what I'm researching really. And, um, And I also spend quite a lot of time sharing the results of my studies in study days that I do nationally and internationally. So I teach out of the expertise that I've gained as an academic and to a certain extent a professional, but mostly my skill is in translating the knowledge of very experienced professionals um, to much less experienced professionals who want to practice breach safely. So can you tell Mm -hmm. us more about your PhD? I was interested in this question of you know, what do we do in contemporary maternity services where um, the RCOG, that's the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the guideline recommends that um, those professionals attending, especially planned breech births, have appropriate expertise. But there's no definition of what that is. And so then we end up with retrospective definitions, i.e. you have a good outcome and whether or not it's because the baby just fell out or you did something, everybody perceives that you must have skill and experience. Or you have a not so good outcome and everybody assumes it must be because you actually didn't have enough expertise. And that's not really um, a very helpful way to look at the topic because we know that breech births, even in the hands of highly skilled professionals, highly experienced professionals, there will still be adverse outcomes, just like there will be with head down babies. So we need a better, more prospective way of being able to identify who do we feel has competence and expertise and who do we feel still needs support. Um, And to a certain extent, I kind of have come to the conclusion that everybody should always have someone else in the room who has some experience with breach um, because it's not the type of thing that you will encounter enough in your lifetime to ever feel truly expert about and that safety always benefits from a collaborative way of working and the perspective of other professionals. So what I did is I gathered um, a group of experienced professionals and by experience I mean having attended over 20 breach births and at least 10 of those being in the upright position, so where women are kneeling or on a birthing stool or standing or squatting or in asymmetric positions, um, that I wanted that experience with a physiological model. The average number was about 135 that my panel had attended, so 135 breech births, that's, that's a very high number these days. And two of the professionals, there were 13 midwives and 13 obstetricians and two service user representatives who had had breech babies themselves. So two of them, one midwife and one doctor, had attended over 400 breech births in their career. So that was a substantial number. I wanted to find out what they felt we needed to do to develop breech skill and also look at some of the underlying principles of a more physiological 
practice because up until recently, our UK guidelines um, basically said that women should be in a lithotomy position, which is on your back. Um, but this is a new way of practicing which uses positions which work with maternal movement and even the um, instinctive and reflex movements of the baby as the baby actually assists his or herself to be born um, with the aid of gravity and maternal movement. So I wanted to look at the underlying principles of that. And so that was what's called a Delphi study where I asked their opinions and then did a kind of consensus technique. So we developed a list of consensus statements around that topic. The other arm of my research was an interview study with people who had experience more around my level, really, where they were still developing competence. So they had attended between three and 30 um, breech births. And I wanted to look at people who could still remember what it was first like to learn skills and how they did learn those skills and what was required and from their perspective and what was helpful to them and what the process was like. So that was a research method called grounded theory and it resulted in a theory of how breach skill develops. So some of the overarching themes that have come out in my research, because then eventually I put the two strands together to look at um, what truths could come out of, you know, putting those two together. And um, some of the themes were that the guideline numbers were useful. So, for example, the numbers that we came up with was around about 10 to 13 breach births is where people have encountered a significant some of the main complications and they were beginning to feel themselves really competent at breech birth. So that's about 10 to 13. Um, The panel felt that we should attend about three to six per year to maintain proficiency. So to be actively proficient. And then about 20 was associated with expertise. Okay. Now those guideline numbers Um, However, the panel felt really strongly that it might not actually be helpful to have numbers. And I certainly came to the conclusion that it wasn't helpful in terms of professional regulation, i.e. you can't attend a breech birth unless you've attended this many births, etc. Because it might, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you've attended 20, you're really safe either, you know. But what it does do is it gives us a way to talk to women about what we can offer them. So in places where the experience level is minimum, rather than saying, yes, we have experience when the person available has only attended four breech births, or no, we don't have experience, then what we could say is we have this level of experience. And, you know, these are the levels that are associated with competence and expertise, but this is what we can offer you. Now, nothing is a guarantee of safety, but it helps to have a collaborative discussion. So there was the guideline numbers, and then there was a recommendation about forming specialist teams. And again, the word specialist was contentious because nobody wished to imply that specialists had an exclusive skill set or that they would be the only ones attending breech births. But there was a lot about community of practice and how important it is for people who are developing skill to be able to talk to other people who are attending breech births and have those discussions and about continuity. There's a lot of talk about continuity in midwifery care, but not so much in the care of complex women who might actually need continuity of obstetric care as well. Um, And so continuity, which means that 
you are familiar with someone attending your birth enables relationship to develop, um, which the people participating in my research felt added to the safety of the birth. So one way of doing that is establishing local teams who can attend these births, providing continuity for women and for their fellow colleagues. So it's like a safety net and a layer of expertise, which actually, rather than developing an exclusive skill set among a small group of people, can actually enable expertise and competence to develop more widely throughout the entire team because the team has the support of people who actually have maintained proficiency and attend breech births regularly. So these are actually really sound principles across all midwifery and obstetrics. Exactly. It really resonates with a lot of other research in other areas of maternity care, you know, the importance of continuity, um, the contribution that specialists can bring. You know, we already have diabetes specialist midwives, um, mental health specialist midwives, specialist midwives who work with vulnerable women. Um, And it doesn't mean that they're the only people who care for diabetic women or vulnerable women, but it does mean that they're able to lead that care and um, to caseload um, and to audit and reflect on it and be a vehicle of um, knowledge sharing both within their own institution and bringing out the lessons that they're learning locally into a wider community of practice across institutions. Yes, the, the cascading of knowledge and experience across the whole team and yeah, as you say, across the whole community seems like a um, really important way of yeah of of sharing um, yeah. and and increasing choice for women i really loved the idea that that women then get told this is the level of experience and this yeah. is what is considered to be specialist and then you can choose yeah yeah exactly and when we talk about specialists and we think well what does it mean to be specialist again it doesn't mean that you have all the answers or you're the, you're the only one with breach competence but it does mean that you do have a specific professional role which is responsible for championing the breach cause locally and um, being that bridge of knowledge transmission. So we have to understand specialism as a professional role rather than a guarantee of safety really. So at my local hospital they don't do vaginal breach birth, they refer to John Radcliffe. Okay. They just simply don't have that that specialism. Am I using that correctly? (laughs) Yeah, yes. Definitely. And and so that is one way of doing things. You know, if you're close enough to a hospital like John Radcliffe in Oxford, you know, referral might be the way that you do things. However, you know, I would like to think that my research offers a way of thinking about how institutions, because there are many, many of them across the UK, can think about developing some homegrown expertise mm. in the safest way possible. There's certainly a move towards that in other areas locally. Mm-hmm. And, and it just occurs to me that they do do twins and very often second twin is going to be yeah. breach. Exactly. But the research doesn't indicate that being born breach as a second twin um, increases the risk at all. But again, that is a place to start if you are doing twin deliveries having the people whose breach skill you want to develop attend twin births is one way of developing that skill. Mm. Um, You mentioned that when you selected your people with experience, you wanted them to have at least 10 experiences of upright Mm -hmm. birth rather than lobotomy. Why 
particularly upright? Well, I'm a midwife researcher and um, so my main area of interest is in physiological breech birth in the kind of contentious debates about whether midwives or doctors should be the lead practitioners at breech births. I clearly feel that there's a role for midwives in this. And I think that is because midwives are the experts in physiologically normal birth. So I am interested in that model of working with birth in general. And my feeling was that there may be different competencies. And indeed, I found there were some different competencies that people working in a physiological paradigm use. And that also they have different principles that they work under. So I didn't just assume that they would be using the same um, set of principles that obstetricians use when assisting a breech delivery in a lithotomy position. I wanted to kind of tease out what are the underlying assumptions in these practices. So I wanted obstetricians who were practicing in that way as well, because I wanted the results of the research to be to a certain extent um, transferable across settings and be applicable whether someone was an obstetrician working in a hospital, um, attending women who wanted to move freely in labor, or a home birth midwife working in South America. I wanted the results to be something that were universal to breach birth and not just the inherited sets of norms in one specific cultural setting. Right, so just taking the kind of normal physiology of birth as the starting assumption. Exactly. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) Um, The people listening to this, mostly midwives, student midwives, doulas um, and antenatal teachers, what sort of things should we be communicating to parents, to mothers about this? Well, do you know what? I think that the new Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the RCOG guideline, is a really huge leap forward. And when I counsel women, I literally read through that guideline. I mean, and there's more nuance that can be put on it, but that's probably most appropriate to whoever is doing the official counseling, unless you have a lot of experience. But there's some really straightforward information in there. For example, they talk about um, how we should be counseling women using the absolute and relative risks, and they outline what those are. So we should be giving women the information that the risk of perinatal mortality um, after a planned cesarean section for a breach is about 0.5 per 1,000, so about 1 in 2,000. After a planned vaginal breach birth, it's about 2 in a thousand. But the thing that they have added is a comparison with cephalic birth. So if you're planning a normal head down um, baby birth, the risk of perinatal mortality is about one per 1,000. So actually having a planned cesarean section appears to have your risk from the kind of normal head down birth that you were planning to have before. Um, But we don't recommend that every woman choose to have a planned cesarean section by any means Mm. um, because there are obviously risks to that, risks to future babies, risks to future pregnancies for the mother and all sorts of things which are accounted for in the RCOG guideline. So what this, um, the guideline is really balanced about basically saying breech birth is a reasonable choice and everyone will look at that figure, that two in a thousand compared to one in a thousand compared to 0.5 in a thousand differently. For some, that will seem a really big difference and a risk they're not prepared to take. For others, they will say, well, 
I'm actually prepared to take that risk um, for all sorts of reasons. And that could be anything from I plan to have six children to um, I really believe it's good for babies to be born vaginally um, because it sets up their immune systems. It, it does all sorts of things. And so I think the RCOG guidelines are a really good place to start. And even if you work in a setting, you know, that doesn't do vaginal breech birth, there should not actually be a setting like that. Um, it should be the case where you lay out what you can offer women and women should be able to make an informed choice, even if, for example, someone in your hospital doesn't want to travel to John Radcliffe, um, but they want to stay locally. Um it is up to them to make that choice. But the reality is um, sometimes that isn't the type of counselling that they will receive because midwives are also often very concerned, well, what if I give women information and then they get completely inf different information and that puts me in conflict with my colleagues um, and I'm accused of brainwashing women or leading them astray because these are real things that happen to people who present women with choices in environments which aren't set up to support those choices. Um, but I always say, you can't actually go wrong referring women to the RCOG guideline. Mm. No one can come back to you and say, how dare you <laughs> tell her about the RCOG guideline? You know, it's it's what we should all be practicing towards. Um, so, and actually, doing something like that so professionally actually raises the bar and inspires your colleagues to do a bit more of the same. Because if women go into a consultation saying, but I've read the RCOG guideline and what you're telling me is completely different, why is that? Then, you know, that's the kind of drip, drip, drip effect of change that we want to achieve within today's maternity services, really. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Just to be empowered to ask that question, there's really really key I've learned loads actually listening to you Sean thank you <laughs> fabulous well it's lovely to speak with you yeah, thank you all right bye. bye bye I really really love talking to Sean and partly because of the things she was saying about how to support women's choice and individualize the care so it wasn't about saying oh there's this risk if you have your baby, your breech baby, vaginally, it was about saying, we've got this amount of expertise. Are you happy with that? So it feeds into a woman's uh, ability to make an informed choice. Yeah, I really yeah. loved that. And of course, that applies to all the different things as well, doesn't it? All the decision making, just being presented with, this is what we can offer you. If, if you're giving that information to somebody, then you're setting out a uh, a dynamic where the woman is being given the final choice yes and that again needs to be the way the conversation goes whatever the birth yes so yeah when when parents say to me antenatally why would we not just follow the medical advice and I'm trying to kind of say well I'm not saying you should go against medical advice but I am saying you should be the final decision maker there's a sense in which when she makes a choice to follow the medical advice because a doctor is saying it or even a midwife for that matter, when she makes the choice to put her confidence in in uh, either the midwife or the doctor, that is her choice too. Yes, but it needs to be that she feels it's a choice. It's not, well, your baby's breech, you're going to have to have a cesarean. It's your baby's breech, we have this 
amount of expertise. It's not very high. Yes. Or we can offer you a cesarean. Or we can refer you to another hospital. What would you like? No, no, I get that. I guess I'm pointing to, to those women. I've been involved with the care of, of women who that their position is whatever the doctor thinks best is going to be the choice that I make. I, I don't like the idea. You know, I was watching something the other day on YouTube um, where a woman was expressing this kind of opinion. Uh, you know, I'm putting my faith in what my doctor is saying that's my choice and someone said well haven't you read this and haven't you read that and haven't you considered this and haven't you considered that as if somehow her choosing just to trust her doctor was 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 not a, a choice that she should be allowed to make she should absolutely be allowed to make that choice yeah and i think it's important i mean don't get me wrong i you know my commitment to evidence yeah and uh, you, you know my my commitment to women being informed but, but should a woman dis- decide that she's not going to read the evidence, she's just going to she's just going to put active faith in a doctor. That's her choice as well. Right. It is. And that's a very good example of why making the cultural change necessary for her doctor to be giving her the right advice is so much bigger than just the pressure that that in this example on YouTube, the pressure being put on that one woman. It's not up to her to change the system. She should do what she wants to do. Yeah. She should be supported to make her decision as as it is. And the cultural change needs to be much, much removed from the individual. No, I, I, I do get that. But in terms of our broad culture in the UK around professionalism, that does introduce some some areas where people get confused. Because, you know, if I go to see my lawyer, and my lawyer gives me some advice, right? I'm very unlikely to say, well, you know, can you give me the papers on that area of the law, please? Because I want to just look into that for myself so that I'm making an informed choice about your advice. We wouldn't do that, would we? No, but even within the profession of of lawyers, um, just lumping them all in together, there are going to be some who are are very, very good and well-informed and there are going to be some who are not. And it's very difficult for the layperson to make that judgment. So, yes, you do trust. And I'm sure there's somebody somewhere um, getting all hot under the collar as a lawyer saying, but we need to change um, lawyering, for want of a better word, because I don't have one, um, so that so that we raise the standards so that that isn't the case. No, I get it. And there are safeguards within the legal profession, of course, exactly. where... Well, you know, lawyers have got pretty good insurance against being sued for poor practice. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, they, they, I think they have to have it. This is very relevant to the recent news. It's, it's recent as we record. It will be less so when this comes out um, about the whole um, parent abandonment of the normal births campaign. The, the RCM's normal birth campaign uh, was changed three years ago uh, to the Better Births Initiative. Uh, And this arrived in the general media as uh, a change of heart or a change of direction from the Royal College of Midwives, uh, which at best is a distorted angle and at worst is uh, a a, a kind of a a seeking to control the narrative. Yeah, a witch hunt, if you will. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a broader agenda uh, being led by... What's his name? Jeremy uh, Hunt. Jeremy Hunt. I uh, always have to restrain myself a little bit. Yes, we do. Uh, and, and other people who 
who have taken exception to the emphasis of uh, of some midwives in the context of normal birth. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the Guardian article from the 12th, Saturday the 12th of August, which is when I saw the headlines. And she's quoted in there saying, she denies that the decade-long campaign has to promote normal birth has compromised the safety of new mothers, but admitted it had created the wrong impression. So that's their the journalist interpretation of what she's said. Yeah. Um, but the quote is, there was a danger that if you just talk about normal births, and if, particularly if you call it a campaign, it sounds as if you're only interested in women who have a vaginal birth without intervention. And... Yeah. I, I, I mean... I, a midwife's expertise is around, inverted commas, normal physiological birth. So how will we talk about this? Because really nothing's changed in the way midwives want to support women to have birth without unnecessary intervention. That doesn't seem to me to be a criminal act. And, you know, unnecessary is the key word, isn't it? Yes. Because no one's arguing that there, there should be no interventions. You know, thousands of women... Uh, have been saved from injury and death by medical intervention. Well, it's exactly as we've just been talking about the breach thing, isn't it? Where more and more and more breach births are had through a medical intervention. And I'm not going to argue about whether or not that's necessary. Um, But it does mean that choice is narrowed. There's a sense in which every problem we're experiencing now was the solution to a previous problem, right? I, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is there is dualism in language. So the minute I say natural, the opposite of that is unnatural. Yes. Normal, abnormal. Yeah. yeah all of that kind of stuff. So, But the thing uh, is, it's not the case that the end of a campaign for normal birth equals, oh, actually, do you know what? You should all just have cesareans. No, it, it, it's hard not to come to some kind of uh, conclusion that there's a Machiavellian intent and it, and it does distract from what seems to be the truth that maternity services up and down the country are under-resourced, underfunded, and are working very hard in extremely difficult situations. Um, so there's a little bit of distraction going on, methinks. I, I don't think the discussion is helped by the often personal type the kind of personally aimed attacks that that go on inside social media and uh, I for one steer clear of all of that because I don't think it leads to clarity of thought no you see I, I don't think personally talking about normal births and obstetric violence in the same sentence is helpful at all go on I, I mean Rebecca Schiller in her piece of uh, birthrights uh, the charity that we that we support uh, on Sprodcast, you know, she makes the point, I welcome a shift away from the use of the term normal, uh, as it's a term that has caused unnecessary division and become needlessly politicised. No one should tell a woman how she should give birth, but should listen to her and work with her to develop a plan that fits her needs and circumstances. I say hurrah to Rebecca. Yeah, always. Always. So for me, we we do need a discussion about how we communicate risk, about how we classify births into certain categories, whether it's complex pregnancies or whatever. We're always going to be at the mercy of language. 
and how our attention to the kinds of words and phrases we use in this context should be paramount, in my opinion. Mm. It needs to be a case of looking at individual situations and using words that describe them, not that value them or don't value them. Yeah. I, the Renegade Midwife is a bit harsh on the Royal College of Midwives. Oh, I haven't seen that. Well, she, she makes some points about, um, let's get back to reality for a moment, shall we? Here's the truth. Midwives generally do not pay much attention to what the RCM says or does. As a union, they're pretty useless, a pretty useless one, and are notorious amongst midwives for basically being all talk and no trousers. They don't actually do an awful lot. Well, I say to Renegade Midwife, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for RCM members generally, uh, but I know RCM members up and down the country that have benefited enormously from the work of the Royal College of Midwives. Uh, Leslie Page's work for the Royal College of the Midwives has done an enormous amount uh, for pregnant and birthing women in the UK, and I would be very slow to dismiss their work. Having said that, her blog is very good. It's a good summation of where midwives stand regarding the evidence. And the evidence is, is, is quite overwhelming uh, for, and I'm putting it in inverted commas, normal birth. Normal is a sort of like a worldwide recognised... Um, Do you know what a better word might be? I just want to put this out there. Yeah, go on. Um, Millie's phrase, positive birth. I don't even like positive. But positive can be anything, can't it? It can be a positive choice to follow your doctor's instructions. Well, if if uh, I would prefer to put positive and negative inside an engineering context in one sense. So in terms of feedback, positive means do more of this. Negative means do less of that. Right. So let's do more of births people feel good about and less of births people don't feel good about. In that context, I like the word positive. I don't like it when we put positive inside some kind of moralistic framework. Yeah, we're not saying you you did better, you made the right choice, you made the wrong choice. None of that. It needs to be, this is a birth you feel good about. Yes, because in my experience, women live inside the story they are telling themselves about the birth they had. And um, so, yeah, I'm with you on that. Right. This might be a time to... Um, get back to our script are we doing endorsements yeah let's do some all right well my my endorsement is is karen hall for president <laughs> Mark, that's my endorsement <laughs> oh is it yeah <laughs> oh. <laughs> so i can't have the same endorsement. you can have the same endorsement that's two endorsements for me hooray so um if you would like to support me it's i'm on facebook facebook.com slash nct karen and um, if you're an NCT member, you can vote for me from the 1st of September. And if you're not an NCT member, you can help by sharing my um, Facebook page around. That would be so lovely. Thank you. And how much does it cost to join the NCT? Oh, now you're asking. I think it is £48 a year. Um, you can get lots of reduced rates, one of which is um, £10 a year if you have an employment support allowance or tax credits. Wow. So that's that goes down to really cheap, doesn't it? Um, but if you volunteer for NCT, then you get it at a reduced rate of um, £26 a year. So there's always, you know, all you have to do for that is, you know, help out at Bumps and Babies sometimes or deliver a few newsletters or, you know, whatever floats your boat. Okay. And, and actually, broadening the membership 
base is another way to uh, increase diversity. Exactly, that was yeah. the word I was looking for. Do you get anything for that? You That's do. Cool. I mean, you obviously it means you're part of NCT and you're supporting all the campaigning and the helplines. Um, but there, there's a members club, so they offer you discounts on various things like cinema tickets and insurance and um, bits and pieces like that um, there's other stuff that you can be part of as an NCT member like yeah. um, you get into nearly new sales early which is um, a big bonus for quite a lot of people yeah. um, you get in before the rest of the crowd oh <laughs> that's interesting yeah but having said all of that and yes it's it's good to join and then you can be part of this um, this election um, and part of the movement, but you actually don't need to be an NCT member to do any NCT events. All oh, right, that's you good. You can go but to you... social groups, you can go to the classes, you can go to that's anything. Important. You can ring the helplines, you do not have to be a member. But to vote, you, you do. do. That cool. is correct. Thank you. And that's the end for today. Uh, we hope you're having a lovely summer. Our next episode will be out on September the 25th, and we're back to the subject of infant feeding. We're chatting to friend of the show, Dr. Amy Brown and Alison Fulis, MP. Let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. That's facebook.com slash broadcast and that's broadcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, leave us a review. It helps to bump us up the charts. Yay. Um, thanks for listening. Um, we're going to play you out now with a breech birth, free birth story donated by Ichio Masadi. Hope you enjoy it. Bye. Yeah, goodbye for me as well. Okay, so I am Ijoma Sedi, and uh, a mother of two. So my first daughter is four years old. Um, she was born in March 2013, and my second was born um, October 10th, um, 2000, and um, what was it? 2016. Um, so that was last year. And one of these babies was a an unattended breech birth. <laughs> yeah, the one that is now nine months is the one that I had um, on my own with my husband. That was a breach birth. Was that fully planned? That was your intention all along? So it was really not uh, my intention in the beginning. So the reason why I had the idea to have a home birth, which was my first plan in the beginning, was uh, my daughter's birth, the first one, was a traumatic experience for me. Um, because I, I had an idea of how I wanted things to go and what I wanted, to, how I wanted the birth at Ashurst Birth Centre, and it just uh, it was a midwife-led unit, and it just didn't plan out like that. It didn't happen. Um, a lot of things just things just started to go downhill, and I just felt rushed, and I felt like kind of poked and prodded, and I didn't I didn't feel listened to, and all these things happened, and it was just like okay, and then my baby was born. She was born, um, I had an epidural, and I was at a Fontouze delivery um, in the hospital, um, which was okay, you know, it was still vaginal, but and also I had an episiotomy. And um, so, you know, everything went, you know, she was healthy and fine, and everybody was happy, but um, I wasn't really deep down, but my baby was fine, which is good. But you didn't feel well, well cared for. No, no, I did not feel well cared for. I didn't, I didn't feel listened to. I think that was the thing, and I didn't feel like I was giving the chance to kind of ex explore what I wanted to explore. And on my water's break, there was meconium in it, and um, from then on, everything was just, you know, kind of rushed. And it was like, we need to do something. We need to, we need to get this done. We need to do this. We need to da 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 da. And before I knew it, you know, things, you know, happened, and my baby was born, and, and that was it. And uh, so I went through a journey of kind of like looking through my notes, just trying to understand what it is that happened and why things happened the way they were when I got pregnant the second time. 
because I said, you know, it's not going to happen that way now. I am definitely going to have a home birth. So that's why I chose to do that. <laughs> obviously, because obviously I had a meconium thing and and uh, I had um, a blood loss. When I told them, uh, the midwife appointment, that I was going to have home birth, at my first meeting, my middle was like, no, there's no, no, you can't do that. I would advise you to have your baby in the labor ward. So before this, I had done so much reading and I, I knew what my rights were. So I was like, no, I'm going to have this baby at home. I'm, I don't want to, to be at the hospital. I, I knew the, the kind of blood loss I had was because of um, they, were, they did core traction on my, on, my, on my placenta when it wasn't ready to come off. So, and I also had an episiotomy, so, and, and it was just a combination of the whole thing. You lose blood when you give birth, but yeah. how do we know where the blood is coming from, really? <laughs> you know, to say that I lost this specific amount of... So, anyway, with all of that, I was like, no, it's not happening. I'm going to have my baby at home. I'm just letting you know, and that's it. Because <laughs> I didn't want to have the regular checkup thing that they do. It was more for me, kind of like... Um, getting my power back, the power that I felt was just taking away from me from my first birth. So it was really important for me to sit there and say to her, I am going to have a home birth and I want you to attend to me. And then at 36 weeks was when I had a feeling that my baby might be breached. Hmm. So so I had written my, my birth plan and I sent it to her. And she said, oh, can I just come to your house just to discuss a few things and about um, things that you wrote on your birthday? Like, okay, come to my house, it's fine. So she came and we had a chat, which was really lovely, really supportive. And then she said, um, do you want me to do anything for you? And I was like, well, I'm kind of feeling baby in a funny position. I'm not quite sure because I'm feeling the kicks in weird places. Do you mind just checking what position she's in? You know, if she's had it out. <laughs> so she brought out her pinard and lay down in my birthing room. And she was started um, touching up my belly. And then after that, she listened in and then she said, I think your baby might be preached, but I'm not sure about that. Um, I'm just hearing the heartbeat in a weird position. And she's like, okay, so at this point, we'll offer you either ECV, we'll offer you another scan, we will da 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 I was like, no, 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 wait, wait, no, no, thank you. That's all I need to know. See you at the birth. So I just kind of shoot her out. Oh, wow. Because I, I know how it works. It's like yeah. once I just start going down one route, I just end up somewhere I don't want to be. And I was really just like, if this is going to be my last pregnancy, I must make sure I stand up for myself at each point. I will not let anybody push me around or try to make me do something I don't want to do. So she left. I literally just broke down to my husband and like, oh my God, this is like the most horrible news ever. So, and I, I literally gave up at that point. I was like, that's it. You know, I said, I'm going to go to a C-section and it's going to be all horrible and I'm going to have the same thing I didn't want again. It's just going to blah, blah, blah. And my husband said to me, how do you know? You know, don't just give up now, you know. She's not even sure. We're not sure that she's breached. And then I think at some point when it just clicked for me was when I was trying all these things, I watched a video on YouTube about a woman that had had a, a breech birth, a vaginal breech birth, and I just wanted to see what it looked like. Yeah. I just wanted to see it and just have it in my head because it just felt in my head that it was impossible to do. So I saw her and she was basically like me, tried everything, nothing worked. And at the birth, she had her doctor and her husband and a couple of people helping her and she it looked really powerful but she did it you know and it felt really easy and they were really hands off they were just looking at her they kind of he, I remember the doctor putting his hands to kind of pop the legs out of the baby and just you know did some stuff you know but it felt really non-invasive it felt quite light and that really just turned my head I was like okay so that's not too bad I think I can do that you know okay all right we'll carry on if she breached we'll just see what happens in the day and blah 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 and we'll just have it you know 
And then I got a letter from a consulted midwife telling me, um, I, well, I didn't read it because I didn't want any, anything to bring me down. I made my husband read it, and he and she was like, "Oh, you know, you've chosen to do this, and you don't want any, you don't want any vaginal examinations during your birth. Um, we don't know how we can support you, and there's not a lot of midwives trained for this, and so it might be that you might have to come into the hospital, you know, because we might not be, you know, there might not be enough staff." Uh, midwife that are trained to deliver breech baby at home and all these things and so he just gave me the summary of what she said so at that point when I received that letter that was the point when I said okay you know what I'm gonna have it on my own so at this point they had already they had already dropped off the home birth kit so I had it at home uh-huh. so I said to my husband it's gonna be it's gonna have to be me and you then and he was really on board with that and I said to my husband, something isn't right, we will, you know, call them. But let's just try first. Let's just try and see what happens. And actually, still, we don't know if this baby's breached because we're not sure. We haven't done any scans or whatever, so we don't know. So let's see what happens on the day. Let's see what comes out first. So, so on the day, labor started upstairs. It was around five in the night. And um, I started getting these niggles. Well, I've been getting them for weeks, but this one felt like different. You know, the air smells different. And I was like, and I went to the toilet to pee, and there was a show. There was a very faint show. It was quite picky. And I was like, oh, it started. And I got all excited, and it was just amazing. So I went back to bed, and my husband, husband go to work. It's still early. If something happens, I'll call you. It's okay. So he went to work, and I started, and they started getting quite intense. And I was like, ooh, okay. Something is happening, I'm just breathing, just doing my own thing, you know, all my practices, just doing what I do, you know. And um, my baby was here, my other four-year-old was here climbing all over me, and I was like, oh, I can't have this. Uh, I called my husband to come home, so he came home from work, um, made us something to eat, looked after her, and then one of my friends came and took her away. So all this time I was upstairs, just breathing, just doing what I do with my breath, just relaxing my body really and just allowing the contractions to come because that was my main thing was just to when it comes just to allow them to come and not fight them my first baby's labor took like five days so with this one I was like okay we're gonna be here for long so I'm in here for the long ride let's just chill and relax but before I knew it six hours in I started to feel like I wanted to push so I was like, oh, my God, no way, that's quite quick. Whoa, okay, all right, you know, and I called my husband, all right, get get a bowl because something is happening. So he got a bowl and he put it beside the bed. So I just squatted down and pushed and it, was, it just took all over me. Actually, it wasn't me pushing. It's like my body just pushed yeah. and my waters went upstairs. And I was like, okay, waters went and it just felt like a big relief. And then there was meconium in the, in the water. I did so much reading for this pregnancy that I, I think, you know, my head was going to explode by the end of it. Also, more so because of the meconium was when my birth kind of went downhill with my first baby. Mm. So a lot of the reading I read was about meconium and, you know, how the worst thing you can do is to panic, which is actually what was done to me. You know, what was how I was made to feel with my first birth was the panic, which distresses you, puts you in distress, puts baby in distress, and then there's higher risk of MAS. And uh, so when my water spoke upstairs, honey, with meconium, I can't even tell you that there was no flinch in my in my body at all. You know, I was just like, okay, just one of those things that happened. Okay, I just carried on, you know, breathing. I went downstairs. My husband had prepared the pool. The candles were already there. He set up the room. 
no light. There was no light at all. It was lit by a few candles, rose petals. It was just beautiful. My mm. body just fell into like it was just mushy. I was just feeling like mush, really. So I just plunked my body into the pool, and then I started to feel the pressure and the things started coming. You know, just kind of like it started to take over my body, and I was just going with the feeling. And as I was going with it, it was just. You know, I just felt something just coming, you know, and I put my hand to, to check myself to see what it was into into my into my vagina. And something was just coming and going in. And I was just feeling it. I was like, I don't know, is that a head? What is that? I don't know. I said, I've never felt this before. I don't know what it is. I was just, and then at some point, you just kept doing that back and forth thing for a while. Yeah. That's when I had the feeling. The first doubt I had, you know, the transition mm-hmm. thing, maybe this was then. I said to myself, do you think we should call somebody because... I, oh, I don't know. It's just been doing this for a while now. And then he replied to me, oh, are you sure that's what you want? And then I just played it back in my head. So I said to myself, okay, what's going to happen? So I'm going to call the midwives and then they're going to come and they're going to turn on the lights and then they're going to start touching me and asking me questions and poking me and wanting to know, blah, blah. And that just, like, literally, I was like, no, that's not what I want. So literally, after I said no, literally, the next push, I was holding my baby's bum in my hand. Wow. Literally, the next push. It was just like, <gasps> and I said to my husband, no. That, that that's not a head. It's a bum. Well, it's not a head. And he's like, oh, that's great. He's like, carry on. I was like, and I just felt this wonderful release from my body. I was like, oh my god, that's my baby's bum. I will never forget this feeling. So it came out in three pushes. First push was that, and I was like, oh, okay. And I just waited. The second feeling to push came, and I just felt something just pop behind me. And these were her legs. And then the next feeling came, and then it was like. Oh, just a little sting, and boom, she was out. And he was like, and then he took her. She was still under under water. And he took her and he just passed it around to me, and I just held her. And he's like, and I was like, what is it? And it was like a girl. I just held her in my body, and she was like, you know, floppy. And I was just rubbing her back and kissing her, sucked out the mucus from her nose and her mouth. And then she just looked at me. She didn't cry. She looked at me with this big black eyes that I would never forget. And he looked at me and I was like, oh my God, our baby's here, honey, we did it. I was just overwhelmed. The most overwhelming feeling ever. Just felt natural, just felt normal, felt there was no fuss, there was no nothing. And I carried her. And then I was like, oh my God, okay, get ready for the placenta. And I, again, that kind of reference back, I remember the placenta, the hospital pulling me and trying to get it out. So I was like, okay, get ready. So I just sat back down inside the water, getting ready for the placenta to push the placenta. And it was just there in between my legs. There was no effort at all. It was just lying there. And that was it. Wow. And that was it. That is incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Karen. You're welcome. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.